I don't know if you can tell or not, but uh, some of the gentlemen in the church last Sunday night after the church voted decided to raise the pulpit a little bit. What do you think? <laughs> I uh, made a joke about uh, Will while ago when he came up here. I said, man, you're going to be looking like this here if you're not careful. But uh, they raised it four inches. I think it should have gone four feet. I'm not quite sure. But uh, yes, I'm a little bit under 6'5". And I am a tall drink of water. Thank you for the joy and the privilege that is mine to be your interim pastor for the season uh, that we're in, a season of transition. Uh, Pray for your search committee, and hopefully my job will be short-lived here. I asked the chairman a while ago if this was my last Sunday, and uh, so you guys don't put any pressure on him. Pray for him. Pray for the team. And uh, my job is to lower, you know, so get the, the, the bar so low that by the time you call a new guy here, it'll be easy for them uh, to do that. That's my job. So thank you for allowing me to be here today and for the joy that I have to be your interim pastor and serve with your very competent and very capable church staff. It is a joy to be here. Just want to let you know that I know Andrew preached for about an hour when he came up, and so since the boat's already cast, now it's my time to preach an hour, right? (laughs) And I'm going to blame Victor on that. I did hear from Andrew this morning. He's praying for us, and uh, he and my son are good friends, and it's a joy to be here where he stood. And and, um, Ike was the pastor before then? Gil. Gill, I'm sorry, and uh, another church, and uh, he also told, uh, told me that today that he's be, be praying for us, and uh, he was your uh, pastor for 24, 25 years, a long time, and uh, he is now pastoring somewhere here in Texas, right? Okay, and uh, so I am kind of new to Texas. I've been gone for 25 years. I'm just coming back and getting reacquainted with everybody. I've been on a journey, and so Um, Great to be back in the great state of Texas, the promised land, right? (laughs) Isn't that right? The promised land. And Amarillo is the heart of the promised land. Is that not true? Come on, guys. (laughs) Work with me now. It's good to be here today. Um, If you have your Bible, take your Bible and turn with you to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Let's dive into the text together in just a few moments. We're going to start a new series this morning entitled Approaching the Almighty. Approaching the Almighty. It's a series in which we're going to study the Lord's Prayer or sometimes defined as the Disciples' Prayer. I like to call it the Disciples' Prayer because it is, in fact, in Luke chapter 1 where the disciples asked Christ to teach us to pray, and Christ did teach them how to pray in that passage. But I'd like to refer back to the one that's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. That's one of my favorites, and so that's what we're going to dive into together in the next few Sundays. I'm going to encourage you to stick it out with us as we go through these five or six weeks as we're studying together phrase by phrase the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 because some of us need to redefine how we pray. And uh, what I also want to do in this series, I want to call the church to pray. If there ever was a time that the church needed to pray, it is now during this transition time. But it's not just because you're without a lead senior pastor, but I think it's because that you are a church that is still on the move. You're still progressing. You're still moving. You're still engaging ministry and this city with the gospel. And so it is imperative, I think, that we as a church unified together as the body of Christ to pray together Individually and corporately 
in this season of prayer. And I think it's important that as we pray, that we pray as Christ taught us to pray and that we pray biblically. And so I want to focus on that together as we look at the Lord's Prayer in depth for the next six to seven Sundays. I know that seems like a lot of time, but I am not short of words. And so it's going to take us a while to get through that. I want to focus this morning as we start this series in this introduction on the word approaching. God has given us the incredible privilege to approach God in prayer, to approach him. We learn in Hebrews 4.16 where it says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Again, he says in Colossians 3.12, in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence in and through Christ to approach God the Father sitting and reigning on his throne. Prayer is our opportunity. It is our privilege. It is what Christ has instructed us and is what he has modeled for us in that we are to come to him on a consistent, regular basis in prayer. Prayer is vital to the disciple. It is vital for us today And we must continually, constantly seek to approach God on a regular basis throughout the day in prayer. We must approach him because we have confidence, we have boldness, we have access to God on the throne. Now, we are not just granted access to just any God. The Bible describes, and God describes himself as God Almighty. We know in Genesis 17, 1, when he addresses Abraham, He calls himself, I am, notice what he says, this is how he identifies himself, I am the Almighty. Again, in Genesis 35, verse 1, where he has already changed Abraham's name now to Israel, he says that same phrase again, reminding Israel, who was former Abraham, the same thing, I am the Almighty. Christ, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, where Christ is descending with the clouds and he is returning in all of his glory and the whole world will see him at that moment in time. will recognize that Christ is in fact who he claimed that he was and they will hear Jesus say these words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who was, who is, and who is to come. Notice what he says, the Almighty. God the Father and God the Son who sits and reigns on the throne is the Almighty. He is the all-powerful. He is the omnipotent. He is the one who has sovereign authority over you, over me, over us, and over his church, if not the world. No one can thwart the almighty purpose of God. He is the Almighty. And when we bow in the presence of God and we have access to this incredible throne, this throne of grace, yes, it is a throne of grace, but it's also a throne in which it is occupied by God the Father, God the Son, who are and who is and will always be the Almighty One. And we come before him in all of his power and in all of his glory and we get to beseech him, we get to petition, we get to pray, we get to invite ourselves into his presence and what a joy it should bring us to do that on a regular basis. And we must never forget that when we bow our head or bend our knee or fall on our face before God that we have access to this God that is the Almighty. And that's what we want to talk about in this season of prayer is that you and I have the privilege individually and corporately as a church to come into the presence to approach 
the God who is the Almighty. Take your Bible and turn with me, if you would, to the passage that I want us to read this morning. And we're going to talk about how mighty God is and the power that we have available to us through prayer. So stand with me in honor of God's word. In Mark chapter 9, we're going to read two verses, verse 28 and 29 together. The inerrant, the infallible, and the holy word of God says, the word of the Lord, verse 28. I still hear pages going. I'll let you get there in a minute. I love pages. This is a great church, isn't it? I haven't heard this kind of page turning in a long time. Turn to the person next to you. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast him out? And he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. God, thank you for the joy, the privilege, and the honor that we have to have access to you. You sit, you reign, you rule, on a throne that is rightfully yours. You, Jesus Christ, are at the right hand of the Father in all of your glory who rightfully sits in that place of honor because of who you are as God the Son. And today, Lord, as we enter into your presence, we enter boldly with confidence knowing that we can turn to you and trust in you with all that we bring to you. Because you are a God of compassion. You are a God who cares. You are a God who hears. You are a God who knows us. For in Jesus Christ, we have the privilege to come boldly before you and to commune with you, to have access to you, and to pray. God, forgive us for not taking advantage of that privilege, that access, as we should. For all of us in this place this morning are honestly and humbly coming before you, recognizing that we have not prayed as we should. We have not entered boldly into your presence and petitioned to you that which is needed and necessary. We have strived to do things independently and apart from you on our own because we think we have the skills and the ability and the know-how. We are not the masters of our own reality or universe. And you and you alone are. And so, God, we pray that today and this study will help us have better access to you, better understanding of who you are and what you have provided for us through this access. Lord, we are approaching you today in your word because you are the the Almighty. We thank you for hearing, for caring, and for joining us in this time in your word. So use it, bless it, Transform us by it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Have you ever tried something and failed? Nobody in here has done that. Turn to, the neighbor, turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking about you, he's not talking about me. <laughs> We've all done that, have we not? We've all done that. Something of significance, something of importance, a ministry opportunity or a 
something that someone came to us and asked, it was imperative that we do it. It was vital that it happen, and we tried. We gave it our best effort, and we failed. That's exactly what happens to the disciples in this text in Mark chapter 9. They have received a request from a father who is desperate, and this desperate father is looking for Christ. He is nowhere to be found, and he settles for the disciples, and they exercise their right because they've done this before, as they've done many, many times before, exactly like they did it before, thinking they will be successful as they were before, only to have failed. And sometimes we are like them, And it's here that we come to the text and I think that helps us and reminds us that as we make this journey through life and as we are given opportunities and called by the Lord to step into this life of discipleship and this life of ministry and service to God, that without prayer we will accomplish nothing at all of significance. And we're going to look at this text this morning and learn that Christ in the Gospels, if you study them well, always invites his disciples to follow in his footsteps, to become like him, or they are commissioned in a ministry endeavor or activity that is beyond their capacity, it's beyond their ability to perform without God. And it's a constant reminder to them that they must continually, as Jesus does, who models for them a life where he is constantly connecting morning, noon, and evening with his heavenly Father. For they, too, are desperate in need of him. And today in this text, I want us to connect very quickly. I want us to connect faith and prayer. But I also want us to connect prayer and power. And I want to encourage you to take notes this morning and write down this phrase. I put it on Facebook. It got very little attention. (laughs) But it's an important phrase that I think sets up what we're going to be dealing with this morning. And here it is. Prayer is the exercise of faith that turns to and trusts in the supernatural power of God. Prayer is the exercise of faith that turns to and trusts in the supernatural power of God. For those of you who are sermonizers, if you're going to write a sermon, you need what I call a central idea of the text. We call it the CIT, and that's what this is. Prayer is the exercise of faith that turns to and trusts in the supernatural power of God. Of God. And if you and I are a people of faith, we are praying people. Praying people of faith seek the Lord in prayer because it's only through prayer that we invoke the power of God in our circumstance, in our situation, because we are impotent, we are incapable, we are incompetent to provide anything without the supernatural power of God through prayer. And so here we see in this text this incredible example, and I I thought about, I've got a lot of text this morning, and uh, so uh, we're not quite yet an hour, so we're okay. So, I want to look at verse 14, and let's kind of quickly summarize this, 
and I'm going to try not to chase any rabbits, which is very hard to do. Here we see a reckless attempt on the part of the disciples in this text. Beginning with verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Now Christ has been up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. It's a, an incredible time of of deep spirituality and incredible insight about who Christ is and, and all that happened up there. And they're coming down from this mountaintop experience and they're approaching the nine disciples who were left behind. And these nine disciples are engaged in a conflict, a controversy with the religious elite because of the failure of the disciples to cast out the demon out of a father who brought his boy to him. They finally think they have got the disciples where they want them. They have tried unsuccessfully and they have failed and there's an argument going on and I can imagine that the disciples like you and I when we attend something and fail there's a lot of excusing going on isn't there a lot of discussion a lot of defending and the these religious elites are just on the attack and the disciples are on the defense and Jesus steps into this scene and the crowd I think is amused by what's going on it's like a circus Who of us don't stop to look at an accident on the side of the road because we're curious? And so this accident has happened. There's there's not dead bodies or blood anywhere, but it 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 is an amusing thing for the crowd. And the crowd is gathering and watching the disciples and the religious elite go into this argument. And it's heated. And Christ steps into the scene in verse 16, and immediately all of the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amused and ran up to him and greeted him. There is a crowd now that once was amused, turns now to amazement because Christ is present. Anytime Christ is present, we should be amazed. They are amazed because they know that Christ is there. And Christ shows up on the scene, and notice verse 16, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now, Jesus, does he need clarification? The Christ who knows everything needs clarification. He's not aware of what is happening. No, he knows what's happening. So why would he ask this redundant question? I think he's trying to draw out then, I think, the father who is now sort of backed away and he's backed up and he's mingled himself inside of the crowd because, you see, he's the one that has brought about the conflict and the controversy. He brought his son to Christ, couldn't find Christ, and so he settled for the disciples. They tried and they failed. There's an argument going on. A crowd has, has ensued, and he's, he's sort of hiding into the crowd because he doesn't want to be the center of attention anymore and the reason for the conflict. And Christ is trying to draw out the Father, which he does in verse 17. Notice, and someone. This guy's a no-name guy, but he's someone Everybody is a someone. Let me say that again. Everybody is a someone of importance. And this someone, notice, steps out from the crowd and answers the question that Christ has put forth. Notice what he says. Notice his confession. Teacher. He calls him teacher. He is the master instructor. He is the one who is now on the scene and is going to level the playing field and the one who's going to stop the conflict and the controversy. And he addresses him and acknowledges him as the master teacher now who is on the scene. And notice what he says. I brought my son to your disciples. Is that what he said? I brought my son to you. 
I was looking for you, Jesus. I brought my son to you. You were the one I was looking for. Notice then he goes on. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whatever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. What does he have? It's not a physical condition. It's a spiritual condition that is manifesting itself physically. He has a spirit. This is a demonic spirit that is possessed this boy and is causing these physical things to happen uncontrollably outside of his will and his son's will. This demon is controlling his son and it seizes him, meaning it controls him to the point where he falls down to the ground, he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes stiff or rigid. But notice then after that confession, notice the cause of the argument. So, so he says to Christ, I ask your disciples to cast him out. I came to you, looking for you. You were nowhere to be found. And so what I did is I asked your disciples to cast him out. I asked your disciples to cast him out. We are representatives of Christ. And if representatives of Christ, we can't do what we are asked to do to represent Christ, we fail. And they have failed. And they were, what does it say? Not able. Why were they not able? Because they were self-reliant, not God-reliant. And if Christ's disciples who have the presence and the person of Christ with them as they did in this moment in history were self-reliant, not God-reliant, how often are we often self-reliant and not God-reliant? And maybe that's the reason why we are not praying. Notice the relentless adversary in the text. I could camp out there for a long time, but i got to move. There's a relentless adversary that's going on here. There's a, an adversary that is relentless. He's not letting up. Notice, and he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? He is going under incredible strain and stress how much more do you need to see and to know who I am and what I can do? Shouldn't the disciples have seen and known? How much have we seen and how much do we know what God can do? And yet we don't pray. Notice the command, the imperative Bring him to me. Bring the boy to me. That is a command. He is not making a gentle request. It is an imperative. It is a command. And he, as the master teacher and is the one in charge, the sovereign God is telling his disciples, bring him to me. It is not optional. It is not to be sent to a committee for a vote. It is simply something that is to be done because Christ has commanded it so. And they bring the boy Notice verse 20. They brought the boy to him. They, meaning the disciples, along with the father, possibly. And notice that word when. When the spirit, the demonic spirit, saw him, Jesus, 
What was the reaction? Immediately, there was no delay, there was no hesitation. Immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. There's the physical manifestation of the internal possession of the spirit that was demonic in the boy. Verse 20, they brought him, and there was a battle. And the enemy was not going to give up in spite of the presence of Christ. I think we often have a tendency to believe that this enemy that we are battling isn't relentless. If he had this kind of gall in the presence of Christ himself, is he easily intimidated? Does he just quickly go away? Does he just release the captives that he has? He is relentless in his pursuit and in his holdings in the territory that he has gained and the people that he possesses. And we see this relentless adversary now in this confrontation with Christ, but notice now it's not quite ready for this miracle to take place because there's something more that Christ is anticipating and wanting to come forth through in this encounter with this father and his son. Notice he's wanting an admission from the father before he moves forward. Verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has he been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Why would Jesus ask this question if he already knew the answer? Because he was wanting to validate with the religious elite who were there that this is a bona fide miracle that is taking place. It's not something we made up out in the corner around there and we brought this boy out and set everything up. He's been like this since he was young. In other words, he's been like this a long time. This is not a new thing for him. It's been happening for quite some time, since he was very young. Verse 22, and it was often cast him into the fire and into water to do what? To destroy him. Notice how the father ramps up now this relentless enemy who is not only seeing manifestations of a physical thing, but it is for the purpose of throwing him into the fire. I don't know about you, but fire's hot and fire burns and no one wants to stick their finger in fire. But notice into the water for the purpose of destroying him. Our relentless enemy is seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. That's his only objective. He is not someone to be played with or ignored. He is relentless in the pursuit of not only possessing those captive that he can get and keeping them from the gospel, but he wants to destroy them and us as well who represent Christ. But notice the second sentence in verse 22 But, that's a conjunction. The father has told him now what the condition of his boy is. It's not only a physical, but this physical manifestation is for the primary purpose of killing my son. He wants to destroy him. But, there's more. If you can do anything. The word if is probably the largest two-letter word in our English vocabulary. It is a condition that needs to be met in order for an outcome to be expected. And this father says, but if you can do anything. 
Now, let's cut the father some slack because he has brought his son to the disciples, and the disciples couldn't cast the demon out of the boy, and they have failed. And his faith is a little waned a little bit. It's a little bit distraught. It's a little bit weak. I brought him to the disciples. They couldn't. But if you can do anything. Remember, I sought you first, but you couldn't be found. So I settled for your disciples, and they couldn't. But if you can, if you can. Notice, have compassion on not him, not me, but on us and help us. Any parent who has had a child in this condition or any condition in which their lives were in peril suffers with their child. If you have ever had a wayward child that has somehow, like the prodigal, has wandered from the father, you have also been suffering because of that. And some of you in here probably are. And so this father is in pain, and he is wanting not only help for himself, but he is wanting help for his son. Help us. Jesus responds, this beautiful response, and verse 23 said to him, the father, If you can, that is not a question. That is an exclamation mark. Christ is clarifying, what do you mean if I can? He's not questioning his ability. He's just simply restating, what do you mean if I can? Then he says, all things are possible for one who believes. Did he say some things? What does all mean? All means what? All. Really? Do you really believe that? No, you don't. Profession and practice are two different things. We profess a lot of things that we don't practice. We believe a lot of things that we really don't exercise our faith in. We believe that all things are possible with God, but do we live out the reality of that statement in every aspect of our lives? And when we come across a circumstance or a situation that is too difficult or too hard, or maybe we have prayed for a long time and have not gotten the answer, maybe we think God is not able to do it. All things are, the po- are possible to those who believe In belief itself, Jesus is the object of the faith to believe in me. You see, our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in each other. Our faith is not in in the government or anything else that is out there available. Our faith is and only should be in Christ and Christ alone and no one else. Because he is the almighty one. All things are possible to the one who believes. Verse 24, immediately. Garrett, where are you? Is Garrett in here somewhere? Where are you, bro? I can't find you. There you are. You're moving on me, man. Don't do that. I want to make sure the music guys listen to this. You know what I'm saying? Brother, there was no just as I am here. There's no invitation. You know what I'm saying? There's no end to the sermon. We're going to sing just, I am, just as I am five, six, seven times and wait for somebody to come down the aisle. This is an immediate response 
to the statement of Christ, who says, all things are possible to the one who believes in me, and immediately the father of the child, he did what? He cried out. Now, we're in a Baptist group. This guy's Baptocostal. He cried out. I mean, you know, we're kind of singing like this, Garrett. You know what I'm saying, man? Kind of calm and all that. This, this guy, he's crying out. Notice what he cries out. I believe, help my unbelief. It is a cry. I believe, help my unbelief. And there are times when that should be our prayer to the Father and to the Son. Lord, I believe, but my faith, my confidence, and my trust in you wanes a little bit. Any faith that is genuine faith always is willing to acknowledge how small it really is. If anybody brags about how much faith they have, that's not much faith. I have doubted in my ministry 40 years and five a denominational dude for a while and many times in my life I have doubted. And so have you. I believe, but I didn't believe as I should in either of you. Because there are some times we need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I believe, but give me more faith. You see, prayer and faith is linked. Faith leads us to prayer, and prayer increases our faith. Let me say that again. Prayer leads us to faith, and faith increases and helps us in our prayer. Faith and prayer are linked. The two are the same. A person who claims to have faith in Christ will be a praying person. No question. Because you know how impotent, incompetent, and all the stuff that you lack and you need God. Faith acknowledges that it is not self-reliant, but it is God-reliant. It is not self-confident, but it is God-confident. And I don't have the faith necessary to meet all of the, the, the things that God calls me to live out in my faith, nor do I have the ability to, to live out the commission that God has given me in my service and ministry to him. I don't have what is, I don't have it. I, I sent a thing to my son this morning and he said, praying for you, dad, you know, as you start Paramount, uh, your interim today. And I said, thanks, son, I need it. And he wrote back, we all need it. We all need it. We all need it. You need it. I need it. We need it. Notice this reigning authority that steps up to the scene now in verse 25. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he saw, he's attentive, he knows what's happening. He doesn't want this to turn into more of a circus or a spectacle than it already is. And he wants to save the father from that. The father's already been embarrassed enough to admit, and who of us wants to admit our struggles, our our incapabilities, the things that we have in our family, we have to keep those things, you know, in our, in our families is going on between us, hidden and just to ourselves. Nobody wants to expose what they're dealing with spiritually. And the father's been embarrassed enough, and he's trying to save the father from any further embarrassment. And so he then takes action. He rebuked the unclean spirit. It is not a holy spirit. It is an unclean spirit, meaning that it is of the devil. It is from hell. 
I don't have time to talk about demon possession, but there are people in this community who don't know Christ who are possessed by demons. But if you're a born-again believer in Christ, you cannot be possessed by a demon. You can be suppressed and oppressed, but you cannot be possessed. Sounds confusing, but that's what it is. And I wish we had time to camp out there, and we don't. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. Notice what he says, I, the Almighty, command you, come out of him, and never, ever, absolutely, anytime, ever, from now on, enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, the devil's still not giving up without a fight. Notice, it came out. Why? The Almighty is more powerful than our enemy. The Almighty is more powerful than our enemy. It came out. And the boy was like a corpse. He just laid there. Notice the perception of the people around them so that most of them, they said, he is dead. Is perception always a reality? Turn to the person next to you and say, your perception is not always reality. Did you enjoy that? Looking back in the eye, I said, well, yeah, bub, neither is yours. We perceive a lot of things that are not true. And we've reached a lot of conclusions that are based upon our false perception. And these people looked at this and thought, he's dead. But notice what happens, verse 27. But, I like that conjunction. However, by the way, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he what? He arose. He, who else is about to rise from the dead? They thought Jesus was dead. They claimed it so. But he was not dead, even though he died, he rose from the dead, and he is alive. And this boy is alive. He rose from the condition that he was in. In verse 28, notice the admonition that we learn in this text. I think at this point, probably the father and the son are elated. They're having a moment in which they are embracing, and they're hugging, and they're crying, and they're thanking God. And they're thanking the Lord, and the disciples' mouths are, uh, you know. And th these religious elite who were arguing with them, thinking they finally got Christ where they want him, had to go away and tuck their tail between their legs and go off and hide. And there was a Bapticostal moment as the father and son <laughs> went away from that moment together, leaping and rejoicing and praising God for what Christ had done. But notice verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples. Sounds like a weird place to stop, but there's a retreat going on here. Christ and his disciples move away from the scene. You see, his disciples are always closely on the tail of their Savior. They don't want to lag too far behind. And wherever Christ steps, they step, and they're right behind him. And the reason I think they're behind him is not only are they disciples, and that's what the disciples do. They want to know, why couldn't we do it? They, they want to know. And they ask him in private. There are some conversations that Christ has 
privately with his disciples, and there's some things that he'll take you to the woodshed and privately correct you, right? Why could we not cast it out? Why? It's an important question. It's a worthy question. They want to know why. Why could we not do that? Notice the emphasis, though. It's subtle. Why could we not cast it out? Sound self-reliant to you? Why could we not do it? And Jesus says to them, this kind. What kind? He qualifies this kind of spirit. It is a demonic spirit. There is spiritual warfare going on. This kind cannot, will not be sufficient to cast out, to be driven out. By is a preposition that means it is required in order for this to happen. He says, but, and I'll be driven out by anything. What is anything? Includes everything but prayer. There was an old story told, and some of you who have been around a long time know, and younger churches, they sometimes don't know these old stories, and I'm old enough to know some of them, but uh, about a church that uh, the power had gone out in the community, and this, uh, this pastor was anticipating the power to be on, and they promised him it would before church started, and right up to the very moment that church was to start, he received a note as he walked up to the pulpit to start out in prayer. And the note simply read, after the prayer, the power will be on. That is still true today. After prayer comes the power that we need. I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know where you are spiritually. I don't know what your circumstances are. But I know that we have a Heavenly Father whose compassion is greater than you could possibly imagine. And he knows you by name. He knows where you are. He knows what you're dealing with. And he wants us to come to him in prayer and to lay our petitions at his feet with boldness, with confidence, having access to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Almighty One who reigns and rules on his throne, who invites us in to not only commune with him, but to lay our petitions at his feet and rely upon him and his authority and his power and his might to take care of us. I want to quickly do this, and I'm going to do this very quickly, so write this down very quickly. I want to give you four, five things, that, uh, and, and I'm running out of time. I know it's 11.17. Thank you for that clock, staff. Appreciate it. <laughs> is that yours, Victor? I know it is. Came out of your office, I'm sure. You need a bigger one, though, brother. That's kind of small. Prayer indicates trust. Prayer indicates trust. The disciples put their trust in themselves, not in the Lord. That's why they didn't pray. And if you put your trust in yourself, you're not going to be a praying person. You don't have the capacity. It's not an option. You must pray. Secondly, prayer involves confrontation. 
not only with ourselves, a little self who reigns and rules in here, who wants to take charge and wants to possess and wants to do, but also there's Satan and there are demonic forces out there, and there is a battle, a struggle with prayer, and Satan does not want you nor this church to be a praying church, period. I've done this for 40 years and five years as a denominational dude, and I can tell you that the smallest attendance we'll ever find in any church is a prayer meeting, and that's sad. Number three, prayer invites God into your circumstance and your situation. You wanna, want the Almighty to become involved in where you are and what's going on and what you need and what is necessary? Invite God through prayer into your circumstance, into your situation, and allow him in his time to settle the score. Number four, prayer ignites faith. You need faith Ask God for faith. This father said, I believe, help my unbelief. And there are times when we don't have sufficient faith. And it is not a false humility. It is not admitting to weakness. We must come to the Lord and say, Lord, I lack faith. I need you to give me, instill in me a greater faith than what I have because this obstacle seems greater than I can overcome. This barrier seems impossible. This financial situation seems greater than me. This challenge is more than I can handle. This enemy seems relentless, but I know you can and you will, and I invite you into this thing. Four, prayer ignites faith, but five, prayer ensures transformation. Only prayer can bring about transformation. Hear this, prayer's not the power. Prayer's not the power. He is the power. We cannot pray things into existence simply because we pray powerfully. Or we want it bad enough. But God is the power at work when we access him in prayer. I know that sounds weird to you, but there's a lot of health, wealth, prosperity people who want to claim it and name it and tell you that there's power in prayer and you can do whatever you want. Just pray it and it'll be, I've seen it on Facebook. And I, if you're one of those and I've deleted you, I'm sorry. (laughs) And I have done that in the last couple of weeks. I can't pray something in existence just because I prayed it. My prayer is not the power. I'm not the master of my own universe, and I cannot define my own reality. Only he can. But prayer does transform, as it did in the life of this young man and his father and his circumstance. Prayer is the exercise of faith that turns to and trusts in the supernatural power of God. Prayer is the exercise of faith that trusts in and turns to the supernatural power of God. And if that is true, when will we become people of prayer? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy and the privilege and the opportunity we have on this day to be challenged by this time together in your word I know that your word will not return void. I know your spirit resides in this place because your spirit resides in the hearts and the lives of your people who have assembled here, and you are present. 
God, move among us and in us. Transform us to the reality and the privilege of the access of approaching you, the Almighty, in prayer. Forgive us for not prioritizing prayer the way we should. Grant more faith in us to be a praying people that rely more on you than we do ourselves. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, would you take just a moment to reflect upon whatever it is that God may be speaking into your life today? To the one who's not yet a disciple, I invite you to pray a prayer of faith and turn to and trust in the supernatural power of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as your personal Savior and Lord. For he is the Almighty One who can save you from your sin against God. Have you come to the place and the point in your life that you know for sure that Christ is your Savior and he's the Lord of your life? There's a card in your pew. If you'd like to know more about that, you can fill that out and put it in the little things that are on the exits. and We'll contact you this week. Or maybe down here there's one of our pastors who are here who will be glad to talk to you during this invitation time or after this time about how to make that a reality in your life. A prayer that exercises your faith where you turn to and trust in the person of Jesus Christ and his supernatural activity to save you today from your sin against God. If you're a disciple of Christ, I encourage you to take full advantage of the privilege of prayer and exercise your faith in Christ by entering with confidence and with boldness into the presence of the Almighty God. Turn to Him and trust in Him who alone has the power to provide all of what you need today. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're battling with, whatever your circumstance or situation is today, He invites you to come, disciple, through Jesus Christ into His almighty presence and lay your burden, your petition, your request at His feet. Lord, I pray that as we stand and sing in honor of you today, as we come to the close of this time in your word that you would speak to us individually and corporately as a church so that we might be better at taking advantage of coming into your presence through this great privilege called prayer in Jesus name we pray amen join me in standing as we sing our pastors are here as God leads you we invite you to come